Okay, so we've got a lot to cover today, all right? Here's the thing. It's a little bit on the schizophrenic side, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out a lot of problems up front, and then we'll answer them towards the back, all right? If you zone, I'm telling you, if you zone for 30 seconds, like Stan's like, dude, I don't know. But if you zone for 30 seconds, you will miss out on what I'm trying to teach you, okay? And so I'm going to ask you, try not to zone. Otherwise, man, you're going to be like, oh, my gosh, I have no idea what Chris just said today, all right? And so you ready? We're going to start, like we've been walking through the story, so we're pausing in that for the month of December because we feel like it wouldn't be prudent to teach anything apart from, man, this coming season of Jesus in our, in our lives and in our world, all right? And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 2, and the first verse says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because this was no, there was no guest room available for them. Now, if you've been around the church at all, you've heard this verse a thousand times. All right, here's what you may or may not know. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is used by almost every Bible skeptic to disprove the Bible. All right, so where you go and and watch this, this neat little way in a manger scene, like Bible skeptics, Bible cynics will tell you that this is the text used to tell you that none of it's true. All right. And so what I want to do first is I want, to, I want to give you some firm footing on this, on the arguments that's presented here, and then be able to push you into how you can walk through it, all right? The Lord loves all the people. He loves you as much as he loves them. And so, but you've got to be ready to give a defense for what you believe, all right? And so here's, here's a few arguments from this text, and I'm going to talk to you about why these arguments are so critical for the Bible skeptic, all right? And why they're so critical for you. So argument number one, Jesus never existed, and so this can't be accurate. And here's why they say that. Because Jesus was born in the time of Rome, and we have sculptures of Julius Caesar's, we have sculptures of Mark Antony, we have sculptures of Cleopatra, like we have all these sculptures of people, why do we have nothing of Jesus? We have no picture, no sculpture, no written documentation, like surely someone somewhere would have given us some kind of clue as to what Jesus looked like. And since there's none of that evidence, obviously there's no evidence for him, all right? So Jesus never existed, A, okay? Argument number two, surely we know that there was a census, like we can look it up, like there's historical documents based on the census of people actually writing their names down along with their kids, but the people taking the census would travel to you, not you travel to them. So thus, by Roman law, this says that Joseph traveled to Bethlehem. And so by case, this can't be accurate either. All right, there's argument number two. Argument number three. Mary's pregnant. By Roman law, no pregnant woman needs to travel anywhere to be counted. And so, again, we see a problem with the text, right? So, how do you respond to those? Like, what do you do, okay? 
So I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with the first one, and then we're going to move into some historical stuff, right, to kind of build our case on this, on this, on this idea, all right? So I just found some modern-day scholars, right, some people who have dedicated their life to the archaeology of the New Testament and to the study of the New Testament, all right? And so we're going to have these on the screen for you. The first one is a guy named Bart Ehrman. Now, Bart Ehrman is a New Testament theologian who is not a friend of Christianity, all right? You can read this in, his, in the way that he spoke. He says, these views are so extreme that Jesus did not exist and so unconvincing to 99.99% of the real experts that anyone holding them is as likely to get a teaching job in an established department of religion as a six-day creationist is likely to land on a, on, in a bona fide department of biology. All right? New Testament theologian number two, scholar Michael Grant, says this, to sum up, modern critical methods fail to support the Christ myth theory. Christ myth theory started in the 19th century that Jesus was just a myth. All right? And it goes on to say it has again and again been answered and annihilated, annihilated by first-ranked scholars. All right? New Testament theologian number three, Richard Burge. In truth, the claim that Jesus never existed as a historical person is not on the table of historical scholarship. Unless you are an atheist blogger, According to Richard Burridge, I have to say that I do not know any respectable critical scholar who says that Jesus did not exist anymore. All right? So the people who have dedicated their lives to the study of this, 99.99% of them say Jesus walked this earth. He was born. He walked this earth. Rome destroyed him, and he died. They won't go so far as to say there's a resurrection, but they're like, this happened, and anyone who doesn't believe it is a fool, okay? So that's step one, all right? So let's just continue to walk down this path. Like, the main argument to why Luke chapter 2 is so Bible-critical skeptical is because it promotes lots of problems in the Old Testament. They have to disprove that Joseph never left Nazareth to get to Bethlehem. Because if that becomes truth, then all kinds of things break loose. All right? Point in fact. Um, do you remember the story of the three kings? All right? We three kings of Orient are? That's really not true. We don't know how many people there were. All right? But do you remember what they're doing? They're traveling down to see Jesus. And King Herod, who's a Roman, grabs him and says, listen, hey, where are you going? Like, I've heard there's been a, a king born here. Where are you going? They're like, well, we're going to see him. He's like, well, how do you know where he's at? Now, there's a long story that plays out here, but I'm going to give you the jest. Because they had a document that was about 600 years old. And they said, oh, King Herod, here here it is right here. And it says, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. It will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, when this was written, nobody understood what it meant. All right? We're hundreds of years from the birth of Christ at this point, and so let's walk through it. So now they're showing it to Herod. It's like, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. The recipient of this rider was the people of Israel. And at this point, Rome owns them. So they've been seized, right? 
Then he goes on and says, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod, meaning the Romans will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. You remember this story? Jesus stands before Rome, before Pontius Pilate. It says they strike the sheep, the chief shepherd, and all the sheep scatter. Like we're talking about Jesus here. And it says, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, it just simply means abundant bread. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule and be the ruler over Israel, of whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So we just said, out of Bethlehem, out of the house of abundant bread, will come a ruler of Israel whose origins are before time. And so they're, oh, King Herod, like he's just not a man. Like he has no beginning. Like he was created before time was. And so we're headed to Bethlehem to see him. And so Herod's like, sweet, tell me when you find him so I can come do the same. All right? Like you know how that story plays out. And so this creates a tremendous amount of problem for Bible skeptics because they have a hard time explaining away how 600 years prior to this moment it was already written. It provides an even worse predicament for them. All right? So let me give you just an even bigger picture. About a month ago, we talked about King Cyrus. Were you guys, you guys remember that sermon? So King Cyrus, who was in charge of the Medo-Persian Empire, like we, we walked through that, how he was just like water in the hands of the Lord, and that everything he did was for the, for the story of Israel to be rebuilt. All right? And so prior to that story, though, like the Medo-Persians took over the Babylonian Empire. Right, if you remember from the story. So King Nebuchadnezzar's in charge of the Babylonian Empire. Has a dream. Calls in all of his smart people. Says, tell me this dream. No one could do it. Daniel stands up. He says, oh, king, I can tell you the end of this story. He said, you had a dream of a big old statue. He said, and the head was made of gold. Chest was made of iron, legs, made out of steel. And he said, here's what it looks like. He's like, the, the head made of gold is the Babylonian Empire. That's you. And all of these other nations are going to come. And so eventually, Babylon will fall to this next nation, and that nation will fall to this nation, and this nation will fall to this nation, and this nation will fall to this nation. And when that nation's up, a big rock will fall. And it will destroy all the nations and a tree will rise up. But, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the first of that. Right? You're like, Chris, what does this matter? So at the end of Daniel, let me just kind of keep pushing on you. Like, you got to stay with me here. Chapter 12, Daniel sees all kinds of stuff. And he says, Lord, I don't understand any of this. He goes, all I can do is see the picture, but I can't understand it. And he says, because it's not for you to know. It says the Lord rolls the scroll up in front of him and says, your time is not this. Like you will die, you will rest, and then you will be raised to glory. But all the rest of this will fly. And so historically, here's what we know. Historically, we see Babylon fall to Persia. Persia fall to Greece. Greece fall to Rome, which is the time that we're at with Jesus. All right? So in this story, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, in those days, Caesar Augustus declares a census in this last season of the legs of iron now let's talk through this 
All right? Because all of this is intertwined. History of Rome. You remember Julius Caesar? Everybody remember him from school? If not, you probably got a bad grade in history. All right? So we have, like, those Bible skeptics. Here's what they say. We have a picture of Julius Caesar. Like, we know what he looks like. They carved an image of him. Okay? Julius Caesar's on his rise. He forms the first democracy, meaning he makes the Senate. Right? So there's, like, balance of power. He's off to war. His nephew, 16 years old at the time, goes to travel with him. They get separated His nephew, his name is Octavius, his boat crashes. So instead of turning around and trying to go home, he lands on enemy territory, and he crosses enemy territory to meet up with his uncle, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar looks at him and says, Dude, just by doing that, you're going to be my heir. And so he starts telling people. He goes home to Rome. He sends Octavius off to military school. A year later, we have the Ides of March. You familiar with the Ides of March? Right? It's the day Caesar goes down. His best friends stab him to death. Word travels back to Octavius that your uncle has been assassinated. Octavius is now 17 years old. He travels back. The Senate knows that he is the righteous heir of Julius Caesar. Okay? He's one been handpicked. And so Julius Caesar's dead. The Senate says, here's the deal. Like, you've got to go after him. Like Mark Antony is the man who's got most of the military troop. Like, track him down and kill him. Mark Antony took half of the army, had about 100,000 people. Historically, 17-year-old Octavius has about 80,000 people. But he travels against Mark Antony, and somehow or another, he wins. A 17-year-old with less troops beats a seasoned military man. Like, we don't know how this happens, but he wins. The Senate comes in and says, you've got to kill Mark Antony to restore order here. 17-year-old, he's 18 at the time now. He's like, man, I don't, I don't know if that's the right move because Rome is so frail. Like our military is so frail that if I kill him, all the troops that are loyal to him may, may, may not be loyal to me. And so let's just, let's try to fix this. Let's try to keep unity here. The Senate says no, but he's, he's in charge. He vetoes them just like we do here, right? We have the same form of government. He vetoes them and they form an alliance. And it's shaky. Goes on for a few years, there's backbiting. The Senate says, okay, here's the deal. To fix this, Octavius, you have a sister, make her marry Mark, Antony, and so at least we'll get some kind of stability because now there's family involved. He agrees. Mark, Antony marries his sister. Stability works for just a little bit until Mark, Antony meets Cleopatra. Right? You're walking through this story, giving you a history lesson. So we got a picture of of Cleopatra's money. I thought it would be fun to kind of show you what that looks like because Cleopatra was known to be like a goddess and she had all these rumors of how she was in the bedroom. And I look at that and go, really? <laughs> like, dude, like her nose is as big as mine and it was never a gift from the Lord, right? <laughs> anyway, historically, Cleopatra and Mark Antony start having an affair. He gets her pregnant. She has twins, all right? One day he decides, man, i got to try to work this out with my wife. He goes back home to Rome. He's trying to work it out. They would have a love affair triangle for like nine years. So finally he would decide, man, I can no longer do this, and I'm choosing Cleopatra. So he writes a certificate of divorce for his wife in Rome, a.k.a. Octavius' sister. Disgrace. 
Octavius is like, dude, I've been over backwards for you over and over and over again, and this is how you repay me? And so he doesn't declare war on Mark Antony. Guess what he does? He declares war on Cleopatra. So Rome goes up against Egypt. Now, at this time, Rome's army is strong, so they get their boats. They travel across the sea to go to Egypt. Egypt's Egypt's ships are no no match for Rome at all. It takes about a year before they basically annihilate them. Cleopatra and Mark Antony survive the last fight with just barely getting by. They flee to Egypt. Octavius is in tow behind them. Mark Antony and Cleopatra get separated. Messenger comes in, says, hey, Cleopatra's dead. Mark Antony pulls out his knife, stabs himself in the heart. Second messenger comes in, goes, dude, sorry, messed up. She's still alive. Right? True historically. This point's too late. Mark Andy's like, oh, man, snap. That's a bad move on my part. Cleopatra, and here's the deal. So now the messenger travels to Cleopatra. He's like, dude, Mark Andy just killed himself because he thought you were dead. And Cleopatra's like, so? She doesn't repay, she doesn't repay the favor, right? And so guess what Cleopatra does? Because everybody thinks she's a goddess, and all of these rumors float around about how awesome she is, she tries to seduce Octavius. He wants nothing to do with her. She knows her fate is sealed. She still thinks in her heart that she's a goddess. So She runs. She gets an asp, which is the symbol of deity for them, and she lets it bite her, and she dies. Octavius comes in, takes all their wealth, because Rome was in bad shape at this time, brings it back to Rome, and begins the Restoration of Rome project. Starts paying all of his soldiers, starts restoring all of Rome to its grandeur, builds them coliseums, starts building them these awesome roads, like takes the things that were once clay and makes them marble. His words, he's like, I accept this place in clay, I'm going to turn it into marble. And so he starts doing that. Like he takes Rome and, they, and historically becomes one of the greatest emperors ever. He takes the Senate and he disbands them. He says, I no longer need you. He's like, I'm going to do this on my own. He makes a wreath, puts it on his head, calls himself Augustus Caesar, which means Caesar who is holy. Cleopatra, who kills herself on August 31st, he's like, this is the day I have no more enemies. And so now in the calendar, the Roman calendar of Sextilian is no longer needed. I rename this month Augustus which is where you get your calendar for August. Following in the footsteps of his, of his uncle Julius, who changed the month before it into July for a conquest that he made. And in 29 BC, he starts to turn Rome into its grandeur. First post office goes to him. This dude's super smart. First fire station, credit to him. First police station, Accredited him. Infrastructure of traveling systems, accredited to him. Like, you want to know where we get our system of government? Like, we learned it from them. Why? From 29 BC to 14 AD, he's doing all of this. Historically, everyone agrees that he prompted the world into the traveling of systems, into the traveling of ideas. Like the world was primed for any kind of message to travel. That's why you read in the New Testament when the time had fully come. You'll see that in the Gospels. When the time had fully come. When the time had fully come. Because they used him. The Lord used him. Are you tracking with this? And so he stands up. 
Like Rome at this point is 50-something million people. And he does this. He says, we need to start taxation here. We need to start a counting system for two reasons. I need to know how big the military is, and I need to know how we're going to tax you so that we can provide for the military. And so everyone needs to be counted. Now think of the power of this. You have one man who says one sentence, everyone must be counted, and 50-something million people comply. Now that's power. Unless the man who made that decree is standing in the hand of the Lord. For only one reason so that the fulfilling of Daniel would happen, so that the fulfilling of Micah would happen, so that the the hope of the world would come out of Bethlehem, the place that they thought nothing good could come out of. In the same way that he took care of Cyrus, the same way that he was the Lord of all with Nebuchadnezzar, the same way that he was part of the Medo-Persian Empire taking over Babylon, the same way that he did Joshua, the same way that he did everything in Genesis is the same exact way that he owned Rome so that you would have a Savior that would be born and the message of the gospel would explode because they were all like water in the hands of the Lord as proclaimed in Proverbs, yeah? And this is how the story reads. Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Augustus Caesar decreed only by the hand of the living God so that you would know who he is. So any Bible skeptic just wants to look at this in the plain side and say, man, well, well, here's some things that aren't right. Let me show you all of history. Like you want to know why Joseph had to travel? Because they are right in a sense. Like the reason they came to you is because when they counted you, they wanted to know how much land you had. Well, in order to know how much land you had, you had to go where your family had land. And that's why it says that he traveled back to Bethlehem because that's where his family was and that's where his land was. And so he had to travel there. So when the census came to him, it had to be counted there so they would know how much land he owned. And the idea that, that pregnant women didn't travel, the text says nothing about how far along that Mary was when he traveled. And if I'm thinking clearly, here's what I'm doing. I'm like, Mary, you're telling me that you just got pregnant by a ghost? Some people will stone you for that here. Why don't you get on this little donkey and let's travel to Nazareth or travel to Bethlehem, right? I mean, come on, like be sensible, right? Out of 52 million people, not one person travels to the censor. All so that you would know that he is God and that you would have a firm hope in what you believe. Why is this important for you? Like my heart for you is that your knees and your ankles get strong to stand up for what you know is good. Like the reason Christ came wasn't just to die on the cross, Like he was, he made disciples, he died on the cross so that you could be the light of the world. So that you would have a hope that most people don't understand. And so let me kind of explain to you how this plays out in real life. Because I I know, I'm, I'm with you. Like in my mind, like I was teaching this on Thursday and I almost began to weep because the Lord was answering a prayer for me. Like I've been asking myself for the last three months, am I as bold here as I am out there? Like, is, is the hope in me as strong in here as it is out there? Because in all honesty, preaching the gospel to you is a gift to me. Like, I can preach all day long for hours if you would let me. Because I love preaching for the glory of the Lord. When that shifted in me, man, I can go. But it's easy. It's not easy to do it out there sometimes. And so I've been asking the Lord, like, am I as bold here as I am there? Because I want to be. 
Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite. Like, I'm no different than the cynics. Because the cynics would say, yeah, we believe Jesus existed. Jesus was good. Jesus was a great teacher. I believe in Jesus. But here's the deal. People who say that are the biggest hypocrites alive because Jesus is going to tell you that he's God. And so who's the bigger hypocrite? The ones who believe in Jesus but never believe that he resurrected or the ones who believe in Jesus and believe that he's still God? Because what Jesus says is that he is God. And so I'm not the hypocrite and neither are you. But I would challenge people who tell me that Jesus is a good teacher. I would say that Jesus says that he's God, so you can't live in both worlds, yeah? And so let me get back to why this is important for me and why it's important for you. This past week on, thir- on um, a week ago Monday, when we're, in, we're at home for Thanksgiving, and I, I roll up there. My parents, they eat dinner every night at 6 o'clock, whether you're there or not. They've done it my entire life. Like, they eat dinner every night at 6. It was a gift to us growing up. Like, you eat at 6, and you do, the, you do the dishes, Chris. Like, that's how it works. Now that I'm married, Rachel does them. But it, it works out good. So we roll up there at 5.50, and they're sure enough how they got table set. It's 6 o'clock, and, and I sit down to eat dinner with them. And my dad, he's like, man, I'm so frustrated. And so my, my parents, man, like, like, I don't know if they fully grasp what Jesus can do in a person's life other than seeing mine. And I say that with all due respect. And so my dad, he's, he's having dinner. He's like, man, I'm really frustrated with your uncle, Chris. My uncle's had leukemia for six years. And he says, man, he's like, he's like he just doesn't really want to live. Like, he has no hope. He has no purpose. He has no, he's like, Chris, he goes, it's just a mess. Like, I, I go there, and all he wants to do is hang with me. He's like, we can't even drive um, down a dirt road looking at a farm without him wanting to go straight home. He's like, there's just no hope in him. He's like, he doesn't even want to live. And he goes, then I see Rachel, who wants to live and has all of this hope. And I'm like, how come these people are so far apart? And he's like, what would y'all say to, uncle, to your uncle in this story? And we're having dinner, and I was like, man, like Rachel spoke, and man, she's gave a great testament of Jesus. And they listened to her. And then I spoke, and they didn't really listen to anything that I said, I think. Um, but I spoke, and my dad just kind of smirked, and he's like, man, he'll, he'll never hear that. He'll never hear that. And so the next day, it's Tuesday, and my dad had made a list of stuff for me to do. <laughs> and so I'm trying to knock it off and knock it out. And he's like, hey, he goes, your uncle has a smokehouse because they smoke sausage. He's like, he's not going to cook sausage anymore. He won't even get out of bed. So why don't we go over there and get a smokehouse so I can smoke some here? I said, that's fine. Let's go. So we get the trailer. We go over there to get the smokehouse, and we load it up on the trailer. He said, let's go in and say hi for a minute. And so I walked in the door, and they have a really pretty house. But I kid you not, it was as dark as it is right now, but darker. It's the middle of the day, but all the blinds are closed. Like, TV's on. All the lights are off. It's about 80 degrees in the house, and he's in a blanket on the couch, on, on the chair just watching some show. And they're having conversations about him, his doctor's appointments and all this stuff, and, and you can just tell, like, everybody's just wore out. Like, his wife is just saying some things to him, and he'll just shake his head down because he's just beat down, and he has no hope for living. And I'm sitting there in my head. I'm going, you don't have the right to speak here. Chris, you've been gone 15 years. Like, I don't even know you. Like, you come home once a year. Like, they don't even know who you are. 
And I'm having this war in my head for about 10 or 15 minutes. And I just continue to see the desolation of the whole entire, like there's just death there. Like that's the only way to explain it, there's death there. And finally I got to the point where I'm like, oh heck no. Like if I'm not going to speak truth in this, there's nobody here that can. And I'm the only one at this moment that can speak truth into the situation. And so I said, Uncle, I'm like, do you think you could have a belief problem? And he said, I don't really know what you mean. And for the next 15 minutes, I unloaded all the things that Jesus says about him. If he will get off of the high horse and put Jesus in the chair. And I I laid it out. And my aunt's like, I bet your church loves you. I'm like, it's the truth. Like, it's just the truth. And he starts crying because the word is powerful. It's powerful. And it shined a light in that dark spot. And he began to weep. And then I began to weep. And my dad didn't know what to do. And my aunt lit a cigarette. And I got on my knees with him and I just began to pray. I'm like, I'm like, know the hope that's in you. And here's what I will tell you. Like, he did not accept Jesus right there. But I, that's not on me. Like, are you, are you understanding this? And so here's what I'm like, if I wouldn't do that, then, when, then who will? And so he, here's what I want to teach you. Like in all of this, like to stand on your feet and, and, and just understand what Jesus has pushed you into. Like this is the reason Christ came. It's written for you in John 1. It's not hidden. It's so that everything will burn with the glory of the Lord. And in John 1, it says, in the beginning was Jesus. Now, in your text, you're going to see that it says the word, but they're talking about him, and so I've changed it, all right? It's not against the rules. It's just the truth. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. There is no more stronger truth than this. And then it goes on to say, he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So in him all things were made. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Cyrus, the king of the Medes, the king of the Persians, like name them. Mark Antony, Julius Caesar, Octavius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, like name them. All of them were made for him. Pontius Pilate, Peter, Paul, James, John, you and me, all made through him, for him, by him, depending on what we want to do with it, right? And it goes further. It says this. It says, in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness. And although the darkness tries, it will not overcome it. That's what it says. And so I've asked him to turn the lights out because I want to show you this. Like, I want to give you this in real time. All right? Like this candle is a dollar from Dollar General. All right? Here's how it works. Like if Jesus is alive and well in you, then he lives in you and he is the light of all mankind. It's as simple as that. If he is not in you, you are hopeless and you cannot help anybody and you are a fool because you are fooling yourself. And he's calling you into something greater. He's saying, get off of the chair and come because in me is hope of the world and I want to use you to change it. And so whether your light shines like this or whether it shines like crazy, the darkness will never overcome it. That's what he says. Never will the darkness overcome it. Let me give you this in real time, all right? You know that because of your generosity here, like we we have a mission in the apartment complex. There There were six of us that started that little mission over there. And because of that, we've got to baptize several people in their swimming pools and a couple people right here. 
All right? There are two people over there that my heart beats for. They don't know Christ. And they're hopeless and they're desolate, but yet they don't really want to know him. They want to stay in it. And so a week ago, we're sitting there having Thanksgiving meal with them. There's about 50 of them. And two of these people that I love the most are arguing over who's the better person. Well, I'm better than you because I fixed your door. And then she responds, well, I'm better than you because I washed your daughter. He goes, well, I'm better than you because anytime you want to call me, I'll come help you. And I'm like, this is the craziest conversation ever. I'm like, I'm sitting right here witnessing the craziest conversation of my life. And in that story, Jeanette Miles comes over. And she interrupts that crazy conversation. And she says, she was to the man that we love there. We said, she said, I have, I have bought this Bible for you. She says, I'm giving it to you and I am praying that you will open it and read it. And in my mind, man, my cynical mind, I hate my cynical mind, but I'm like, dude, Jeanette, if you'd heard this conversation, like I think they're far from this. This past Tuesday, I'm sitting up here at five o'clock having a conversation with Curtis. Door knocks. And there's this little girl named Serena. She's in first grade. She is the daughter of the man that Miss Jeanette gave that Bible to. You know Miss Jeanette, she can't you a bulletin every, every time you walk in here at 11. And here's what she says, blows my mind. She's like, she goes, I really want to come to church, but my dad won't bring me. Will you come pick me up? And I'm like, yeah, I will. She goes, I've really been working on my penmanship. I was like, well, that's awesome. I'm thinking, where's your dad at? <laughs> She goes, my dad's been reading me the Bible every night and making me write sentences. And I'm like, because the arm of the Lord is not too short. Like, it's not our role to save everybody's life. Like, that that mindset has got to leave us. Our simple role is to push back the darkness. Like, if the light of the living God is living in us, we have one simple job, and it's to push back the darkness. To speak when it's time to speak. To love when it's time to love but to be the hope of the world, to give people you don't think want one a Bible, to feed them, to be generous so that some of us can do that. And for a first grader to say, my dad's reading me the Bible and I'm writing sentences to work on my penmanship, I will tell you this. This is when the voice of the Lord says, my word will not come back void. You believe that? Like I speak sometimes on Sunday, it comes back void all the time. But in that situation, I know it will not come back void. I know it. I'm like, as long as that girl grows up, man, she'll remember those sentences that she wrote, whether things go well for her, and when the time comes, when the time fully comes, I fully believe the Lord will save her life because Miss Jeanette Miles pushed back the darkness. Yeah? And because you choose to give here to allow several people to go to Arbor Square and push back the darkness. And my hope for you is like, man, like, what do you want to do? Like, my thing for you is, man, wherever you are, Man, be looking for the moment to push back the darkness. And when it comes, you're like, dude, all of Rome, all of Rome existed so that the gospel could travel. So that I would know the hope of the salvation that Jesus provides me so that I could bring it to others. If he is that powerful, what man's going to touch you? If he controls all the Medes and the Persians, if he told Cyrus which way to go, and explained to Nebuchadnezzar that he was God, like how much more will he take care of you when Jesus is living in you? And so here's the thing, like if you don't know Jesus, bro, you would be crazy not to. Like after what I've taught you today, you would be crazy not to follow him. 
And I would ask you this, how well is your life working for you for real? And if you do know Jesus, strengthen your feeble knees. Man, be the hope. Like push that darkness back. You can do it. Because Jesus is clear that the darker it comes, he'll never snuff you out. Never. And this is the hope that we live in, yeah? We have a bigger purpose than opening presents. Push it back. And so here's how we thought we'd end. Man, Curtis and them are going to play a song over you. They're going to put the screens up on the, on the... And I want you as your pastor, I'm asking you, sing them. Like, sing them. A lot of you have no theology in you because you choose not to sing. So sing the words. Man, let them praise the Father with you. So sing them, yeah? Is he powerful? Is his word powerful? Is it all we need? Are we the hope of the world? Only because Jesus lives in us. Amen? Amen.